Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guests this week are two awesome cannabis researchers, Paul Coxon and Patrick Vizi. Paul has been on the podcast before on episode 59, talking about his paper on cannabis deficiencies. Be sure to check out that episode if you haven't already. And also, this is a good one to go to the podcast page at kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab, then Podcast. I will have links to all the papers so you can follow along, as well as a link to their new website that shares all their research in one central location. It's a great resource. Paul has been working in the hemp world as a researcher since 2018 and in plant science research since 2016. He has a background in horticulture, agroecology, and floriculture from his time at NC State. Currently, he's pursuing his PhD at the University of Kentucky while working with industrial hemp. Paul's primary research focuses on rhizosphere management and brings strengths in plant mineral fertility, plant hormones and growth regulators, substrate research, general diagnostics, and greenhouse and growth chamber expertise. In addition to his strong greenhouse background, Paul is also literate in field-level agronomic processes. Paul's passion is for mentorship and sharing the research process with undergraduate students. When not doing research, Paul and his dog Groot can be found hiking in local, state, and national parks. Patrick Vizi has been working in the hemp world as a researcher since 2019 and as a plant science researcher since 2018. He has a background in horticulture and floriculture from his time as an undergraduate researcher at NC State. Currently is pursuing his Master of Science at North Carolina State and is focusing on greenhouse substrates for cannabis and other floriculture crops. Patrick's primary research focuses on plant mineral fertility, substrate research, and general diagnostics. I was super excited to talk to them about their latest published research on cannabis and hemp. Now on to the show. Hi, Paul. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much, Tad. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and start with Paul. I know you've been on the podcast before, but can you tell listeners just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Paul Coxon. Um, currently, I am at the University of Kentucky working on my PhD. Um, I'm working with the hemp agronomy team here um, under the direction of Dr. Bob Pierce. Um, and a lot of the work that we're going to talk about today um, was actually done at NC State. Um, and Patrick was heavily involved, if not one of the driving forces behind pretty much all this work. Um, and it, this was completed like I said, at NC State under the direction of Dr. Brian Whipker, um, who does uh, plant nutrition work there. That's awesome. And and Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? Yeah, I am Patrick Beasy. I'm a master's student at NC State under the advice of Dr. Brian Whipker. And I currently focus on substrates and perlite replacements for cannabis and other floriculture crops. Uh, most of this work was completed while I was an undergrad, but we're still working with cannabis heavily um, at NC State under Dr. Brian Whitaker's program. It sounds like a great program. I, I love the research that you guys have already put out. Um, for those that aren't aware, Paul's already been on the podcast. Uh, he put out an excellent paper uh, that we've 
talked about on the podcast called The Characterization of Nutrient Disorders of Cannabis Sativa. So I highly suggest checking that out. Um, but Paul, can you tell us a little bit about um, the phosphorus paper that we're going to discuss and why that was an area of inquiry that you decided to pursue with your research? Yeah, for sure. Um, so to kind of begin with, um, you kind of have to go back a little bit. Um, we've been working um, in hemp um, under with Brian Whipker for quite some time. And uh, when we first started, um, the, we, we really didn't have a lot of scientific foundations for um, nutrition work. So there weren't really leaf tissue standards. There weren't really uh, ve externally verified, replicated um, fertility work that had been done. Um, and so kind of our, our journey through hemp, we, we actually first paper that we put out was a general survey. So we went to a larger operation and we surveyed quite a few cultivars. We took uh, leaf tissue, did a survey, got some, you know, general um, upper and lower ranges and we published that. And uh, from that, we kind of had a good idea of what, you know, an adequate fertility regime might be. And so we kind of springboarded from that into the nutrient deficiency work. So trying to really categorize those visual symptoms and marry them with the critical leaf tissue values. And one interesting thing we saw out of that study um, was the phosphorus deficiency. It came screaming in um, very early and, uh, you know, the tissue values were extremely low. And uh, we started looking at some of the, the popular press stuff out of there and recommendations. And we were kind of shocked at how high some of the early phosphorus recommendations in uh, hemp um, and cannabis were. And so we decided to do kind of a rate study, um, which was the, the first paper that we'll talk about here. Um, so we had uh, phosphorus fertility rates uh, ranging from uh, 3.75 to 30 parts per million um, and kind of explored that. Um, and then once we kind of finished that up, Patrick got really excited about the upper ranges and wanted to see, you know, what would happen at those higher concentrations. So then his work kind of uh, married into that line of inquiry, and then he tested the upper ranges. So that's kind of the background of this paper and uh, how it all got started. Awesome. So the, the title of the paper we're, we're going to discuss first is called Impact of Phosphorus on Cannabis Sativa, Reproduction, Cannabinoids, and Terpenes. Um, Paul is the lead author on that, and it was published in September of, of uh, November of 2020. Apologies. Um, before we get into that, though, can you talk a little bit about phosphorus in relation to plant growth, plant health, um, and maybe even more specifically with, with cannabis and what you found from your original your original work? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, like I said, phosphorus was a, a, an easy low-hanging fruit early on just because um, the, the massive amounts that were being recommended to some growers. Um, and so um, physiologically speaking, um, phosphorus is uh, really important in um, floral development in a lot of crops. Um, it's an immobile element. And so essentially... Um, what that means is that it will, um, or I'm sorry, it's a, a mobile element. Um, I misspoke there. Um, and it will um, come in pretty early on, um, and it, the plants will be pretty stunted. Um, you'll have this olive green spotting um, on the lower and older leaves. Um, and then, you know, that will come 
progress up the plant and eventually you'll get some uh, defoliation and, and like I said, an overall stunting of biomass. So um, with its impacts on, you know, floral development and then also that kind of stunting um, was kind of our early interest in it. And that kind of segued into some of the rates that we chose. Um, so, so I wanted so, to ask you, so you saw in popular literature around cannabis um, a lot of very high application rates. So was your initial hypothesis that maybe we were in general over applying phosphorus as an industry? Was that sort of where you started? Yeah, most definitely. Um, if, if you look across the board at, you know, say a floriculture um, in general and everything, um, you're, you're very rarely going to see phosphorus concentrations as high as we're being recommended. Um, and, and furthermore, if you, you know, over apply phosphorus, um, you can get some some pretty pronounced um, antagonisms and uh, um, lock out some nutrients. Um, so I, I was a little surprised that some people hadn't experienced more issues with the extremely high concentrations that uh, we were seeing. Well, I'd add too that we're also dealing with phosphorus shortages and over application of phosphorus leads to algal blooms and other environmental issues. Um, so there's definitely some sustainability challenges around, you know, the over application of P. So I think it's great if we can figure out what's, you know, what's optimal for, for this plant. Um, take me through your, I guess, take me through this paper, take me through your research then and what you guys found. Sure. I'd love to. Um, so the first thing I would like to do is just, um, acknowledge all the people that actually worked on this project. Um, you mentioned earlier that, um, Dr. Whipper's program produces a lot of great research. And honestly, that's really because of, uh, who he is as a person, how he runs his team, um, and then kind of the, the team mentality and, and, uh, group support that we have. So I'd like to definitely recommend that, uh, you know, you all take into account that this was not just, you know, um, a one-person show. Um, it was truly a, a lab effort and everything. Um, but like I said, we uh, we wanted to kind of uh, explore the uh, lower end of phosphorus fertility. So typically when you're looking at nutrients, um, you have, you know, your deficiency level, and then you kind of have this linear increase um, for your nutrients. And at some point, it's going to plateau on the upper end. Um, for both, you know, biomass production, but then also um, the accumulation of that nutrient in the plants. And if you get too high, you'll actually see a growth decrease. And, and we know that just from the literature um, that will kind of have this, you know, plateau and then decreasing um, type relationship. And so we were more focused on the beginning portion of that curve. So we chose lower phosphorus concentrations and our rates were informed from our previous work and our surveys. Um, so from our survey, we knew that, you know, in leaf tissue um, across, you know, a couple cultivars, you're going to see, you know, 0.26 to 0.43% um, phosphorus in the leaves. And that work um, comes out of um, Jen Kowalski, um, which is another paper that we had published in 2020. Um, I can provide that link to you, um, Tad, if you'd like. Great. Um, so so we uh, started at 3.75 parts per million, and we went up to 30 parts per million phosphorus. So our rates were 3.75, um, 7.5, 11.25, 15, 22.5, and 30 parts per million phosphorus. So those were our six concentrations. And we wanted to take the plants from the very beginning of their life cycle all the way to 
full bud maturity. Um, so at 16 weeks, um, eight weeks vegetative, um, and then another eight weeks reproductive. Um, and we wanted to just kind of track how the plants developed over time. And then um, at the end, analyze the buds and see what impacts um, the cannabinoids and terpenes, um, if there were any, that these phosphorus concentrations had. Um, so that's kind of a general overview of the paper. Yeah. So a couple of quick questions I had. Mm -hmm. So this paper is based all of on one specific cultivar. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So one question I'm, I'm, I'm going to have right away is how do you, how much variability do you think we'll get across cultivars as we look at different, all the genetic diversity in cannabis? Has anyone looked at that yet? Yeah. So, um, that's a great question. Um, it's something that a lot of people ask. Um, and, uh, like I said, I mentioned that paper from, um, Jen Kowalski, she looked at AOX, cherry 2.0, cherry citrus, cherry cross, cherry wine, um, early pearly, Electra endurance, Midwest stout, severe haze and sweetened, um, as well as a cherry cross by cherry wine cross. Um, and she categorized each and every individual, one of those and looked at the, uh, phosphorus concentrations in the leaf tissue. And oddly enough, um, you know, we, we saw some differences, um, mm -hmm. some very significant differences, but they all kind of fell within this general range of um, 0 0.26 to 0.43% phosphorus in the leaves. Um, and that's really the driving force. Um, and the reason we chose Bayox for this study um, was because that was a, a, a high performer, a very consistent um, genetic, consistent phenotype for us in our research. But yes, you are right different environmental factors, abiotic factors, cultural factors, and genetic factors will impact this slightly. Okay. Okay. No, that's, I mean, that's great. And I, I love the methodology of your, of your paper here. Um, I thought you guys did a really good job with that. Uh, one, one question I have then. So these varying uh, P concentrations, they were supplied. Mm -hmm. So let's just take the 3.75 PPM concentration. You applied that every single irrigation all the way through from um, vegetative through flowering is that that is correct at the same yeah, concentration the whole time mm -hmm. okay. constant liquid feed of that fertilizer concentration throughout so no bumping up or bumping down or boosting during flowering um, and again that comes from some preliminary work that we did um, looking at comparing constant liquid feed versus variable feed um, that we're still sifting through the data on Okay. Okay. Um, great. Well, what, uh, I guess take me a little th through some of the things that you measured in your, in your study, and then we can talk a little about, about some of your results. Yeah. So, um, early on, um, in the vegetative stage, um, four weeks in, we took some height and um, diameter measurements. So just kind of looking at a general stature of the plants and how they may be growing over time. And um, irregardless of phosphorus concentration, we actually saw um, very uh, no statistical differences between either height or plant um, diameter. And diameter is just uh, the average of two widths, so, um, which was kind of surprising to see um, given our early nutrient deficiency work. Um, you know, I kind of surmise that some of that may have to do um, with just the um, overall cultural conditions um, growing in them. Um, we did have a little bit of phosphorus in our water um, from the test values that we ran. 
Um, but four weeks in, um, we didn't see much of a, um, a difference. So you had you had expected to see a little bit more of a pronounced efficiency at that point in time, or stunting on the lowest uh, concentration. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so four weeks, not a big difference. Uh, what happened as you move forward, or were there any other uh, metrics, that, key metrics that you wanted to touch on? Yeah. Um, so early on, um, like I said, we were just kind of tracking biomass production, plant height, plant diameter. Um, but, you know, you kind of fast forward to eight weeks um, and that's where you really started seeing um, the statistical differences. And again, this is still um, vegetative. So we did see, um, you know, this kind of um, variable response in plant height and diameter. Um, but for the most part, plants that were um, you know, sitting right at about um, 11 and a quarter parts per million phosphorus. Um, above that concentration, they were all um, statistically similar. And so um, we were, again, kind of surprised that that was a, a lower concentration. Um, and we um, saw the same for total above ground biomass. Um, so half of the plants in the study we destructively harvested um, at that eight-week vegetative stage, and then the remainder of the half um, uh we took out to the full 16 weeks of flowering. Okay. Um, and what, uh, what did you find then at the full 16 weeks? Yeah. So, um, there's, a, there's a nice figure in the paper that kind of categorizes the, the lack of, um, differences that we were seeing at that 11 and a quarter, um, parts per million phosphorus, um, concentration. So I'd encourage you all to, to be looking along in the paper while I'm talking here. Um, but essentially, um, once we got to the, um, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit here, and I'm actually going to talk about the leaf tissue, because um, we did take leaf tissue concentrations at eight weeks. Okay. Um, so one interesting thing that we saw, um, you know, so Early on, very little difference that we're seeing in those um, phosphorus concentrations. Once you get to that eight-week mark, you know, we're seeing some differences there, um, but at a much lower concentration. Um, I was personally expecting something around 30 parts per million to be adequate for um, hemp that we um, trialed. But one thing that was interesting um, is that when you actually looked at the leaf tissue, so after eight weeks under the leaf tissue, um, uh, most recently matured leaves, you saw that um, as we increased the phosphorus concentration, we um, did not see an upper response or a plateau response like we saw in the plant biomass. So the plant was just sucking up the phosphorus and um, allocating it to the leaves. And we didn't see an upper concentration there, um, even at our highest concentration. So this was a really interesting find because it kind of maybe points to the fact that um, cannabis may be really good at um, sequestering um, that phosphorus and actually storing it. And so that may be um, kind of a, a factor that could help explain why even at these extremely high phosphorus concentrations that we were seeing recommended, we weren't necessarily seeing any of these um, phosphorus toxicities. Interesting. So just I'm, I'm looking at the graph here and we'll have links to these papers so people can follow along. I'm, I'm on table two here and it looks like you, you saw statistically significant increase in height and diameter and above ground dry weight, but not in mm -hmm. below ground dry weight 
or root to shoot ratio um, across all concentrations. And then that significance in height and weight started at 11.25 ppm all the way to 30 and was essentially, there wasn't a lot of significance within that range. Did I state that correctly? That is correct, yeah. So essentially above 11.25 parts per million, you're gonna receive the same height and the same diameter and the same above ground um, dry weight um, or biomass, even if you're applying more phosphorus. Now I had always associated phosphorus with um, root growth and, and, um, and root health. Is that not something that you saw in this study in terms of there being any significance at, at different concentrations? Uh, yeah, you're correct. Um, it does have a role, a, a large part, in um, root development, rhizosphere management, um, branching, etc. Um, and it was a little bit surprising to see. Um, I, I think in this study, um, just looking at the root balls, so when, you, when we were terminating, we kind of broke apart a few root balls. I think it more had to do with the fact that um, the rhizosphere uh, volume was actually a little more limited. And so maybe if those would have been larger pots... Um, or even some maybe like uh, quar blocks, we could have maybe seen that um, those differences come through. Okay, so you think that um, one of the limitations might have been just overall root space? Yes, correct. Okay, yeah, because I'm looking at your photo of these plants, and um, they're not the most robust plants I've seen. Um, no. Ever. <laughs> I don't know a nice way to put that. Um they look just visually, you know, to me a little, maybe a little bit nitrogen deficient. Um, what, what did you think of your, of the overall plant health in relation to this experiment? I guess that would be my first question. Yeah. So, um, we saw the same thing. Um, you know, uh, you're very, you're very correct. Um, you know, sometimes we as scientists, we're really good at running experiments, but sometimes our plants <laughs> may not be the, uh, the most, uh, beautiful, um, when it comes to that aspect. But um, when we actually looked at all of our macro and micronutrients, we were still within um, our survey ranges. So while the plants may not look the most overly robust and green and dark foliage, um, the, the tissue values are still within a healthy range. Okay. Oh, good. Um, so moving forward from eight weeks, I, I would assume you would start to see more more drastic spread in terms of plant expression and plant health. Um, what, what happened at that point? Yeah. So, um, again, we, uh, sampled at about 12 weeks, um, looking at plant height and diameter. And, um, there we did start seeing, uh, more of a trend. So we saw the, the highest, um, height at a higher concentration. So 22 and a half to 30 parts per million, um, as well as diameter. Um, so once they go into that reproductive phase um, and start reallocating um, nutrients from maybe older leaves into the developing sinks, which are going to be your flowers, um, we did start seeing more differences there, um, which again was a little surprising, you know, given how quickly the nutrient deficiency came in um, from the deficiency study. But at 12 weeks, we started really seeing that value of those higher fertility concentrations. You know, one thing that's common in the industry is to have these, uh, you know, PK boosters 
where you're, you're applying high phosphorus, high potassium um, in flour. How, does, how is that reflective upon your study in terms of what your findings were? Do you, do you feel that that phosphorus is potentially beneficial or do you think that maybe the potassium is providing some more of the benefit that people are seeing from these applications? Um, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a really controversial uh, question there because there's a lot of people on both sides that have very strong opinions on that. Um, so I'm going to speak more from like a, a plant physiology standpoint on that. Um, typically what you see in most crops is that um, there will be this kind of lag phase behind um, the induction of the reproductive phase versus the vegetative phase. And most of the time what you're seeing is that the nutrients that that plant is taking up in the vegetative stage, a good portion of those will get reallocated into that developing sink. But you will have this slight overlap between where it's switching from vegetative to reproductive. Um, and I think what a lot of people are seeing in the industry could be um, that kind of lag and overlap. Different crops um, will have a different kind of lag phase. And, uh, you know, I think that we kind of saw that some here. Um, I don't know necessarily if it's going to be the potassium or the phosphorus that's giving that benefit. Um, but like I said, I'm going to answer that question more from a plant physiology standpoint and kind of say that, you know, it's not just this complete switch where once they go reproductive, they're not going to take up any more nutrients. Um, so as plants switch from you know ve a vegetative stage to a flowering stage as they're you know completing their life cycle um, they are still taking up nutrients and the ratio of those nutrients i assume changes um, so you're saying that there's a lag between as they make that switch in terms of what nutrients are most needed is that what you're kind of getting at yeah yeah essentially so um you know it's when a plant switches from a vegetative stage to a reproductive stage it's not going to be an automatic on off switch where they're going to immediately stop taking up any phosphorus any potassium any magnesium um you know they're going to continue taking up those nutrients as they're transitioning but eventually um they'll start slowing down on that uptake at least um from a from a common physiology understanding. Um, and you can kind of see that in other crops as they start dropping leaves and they start senescing and ending their life. Um, you know, the plant's just gonna, at some point, stop taking up those nutrients as much as it would in say a vegetative stage. And it's gonna start heavily reallocating what it's already taken up. Yeah, I mean, that is a contentious subject in the industry in terms of what an optimal harvestable plant looks like um, some people really like that senescence the the colors and, and and knowing that there's not as much chlorophyll in the leaves and other people will say you can really increase your your weights um, of at harvest by pushing the plant harder and, and maybe having what a, you know looks like less of a finished plant i guess um, at harvest time maybe mm -hmm. higher levels of nutrients in that plant uh, tissue or accessible to the plant in the media prior to harvest. So I, I think that's an interesting question. I'd love to see more research on that. Um, oh, we would too. 
Um, it's definitely needed. So looking at um, uptake, partitioning, and reallocation in industrial hemp would definitely be the next kind of iteration of this level of inquiry. Um, so it's been something that I've, I've wanted to do for a very long time, um, just given the, the current state of understanding and knowledge that exists within um, the cannabis industry and within the literature. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure for both of you, there's a million experiments that you have in your head that you would love to, <laughs> you would love to get around to, um, at some point. Um, well, let's let's get back to your paper. Sorry, I kind of went off topic there. Um, were we were we at 12 weeks right now, or were you up to 16 weeks? Where where would you like to continue on from? Yeah, we can we can kind of go to the the bud results um, and kind of the the cannabinoid and terpene results if you'd like. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So once once we finished uh, the experiment, again, we took height width biomass and we took fresh bud weight. Um, one thing I will say about that is um, a lot of the bud material, we were um, analyzing a composite. So we were looking at the, the terminal bud, um, an axillary shoot um, terminal bud, and then a bud from the interior of the plant. Um, so we were kind of limited in taking um, a our dry mass and so that's why we took fresh weight on this but i will say i wouldn't lean too heavily on um, the the bud fresh weight just given um the natural variability that's going to exist plant to plant in that um but like i said we did um a composite sample um sorry did you have something tad no i mean since you paused i was just going to ask if you did any any trimming on these plants or pruning um during the flower cycle or not, or if you just kind of let them grow. That was just one question I had. Yeah. So for the for the purpose of this experiment, we um, did not do any trimming. So just kind of as they were um, throughout the growing cycle. And the the reason we decided to do that is um, we didn't want to potentially um, interfere with removing biomass that could still have some phosphorus resources that could be allocated to the bud um, or those um, developing reproductive leaves. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay, sorry. Keep going. Cool. Um, so then, um, like I said, we looked at the, the different cannabinoids um, and then some terpenes, um, and the results were kind of surprising. So, you know, after that eight weeks of vegetative growth, or sorry, reproductive growth, um, we really saw, again, this kind of plateau at about 15 parts per million phosphorus. So when you look at your delta-9 THC, um, you know, and then if you also kind of looked at um, CBD um, and CBC, those had a plateau at around that 11 and a quarter parts per million. So 11 and a quarter to 15 parts per million. Um, above that concentration, we really didn't see an increase um, in those cannabinoids. Um, so again, kind of mirroring what we saw um, early on at that kind of plateau range in the, the lower phosphorus uh, concentrations that we studied. That's, that's really interesting. Um, that, that's much lower than I would have expected. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was very surprising for us, too, um, which is part of the reason we were really um, excited to publish this and tried to get it out um, pretty quickly. Um, but one thing I, I will mention on this, um, in the paper, um, these are listed as um, milligrams per gram. Um, so when you're looking at those tables, um, don't assume that that's a percentage. Um Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
So when we when we looked at the actual like um, active pools, um, so everyone's pretty familiar um, with kind of the acid pools versus the the active pools. Um, there um, in the paper, we broke those up and we analyzed them separately because we wanted to see okay, so if you are um, under a state that is going to regulate off of delta nine versus total THC. Um, and then looking at, you know, what's in your acid pool and what's in your decarboxylated pool. Um, we we kind of separated those. So when you look at the acid pool, um, the acid pools, which is where most of your cannabinoids are come from um, when they get decarboxylated there. Um, again, we saw a very pronounced plateau at that 11 and a quarter parts per million phosphorus for CBDA, THCA, total THC, total CBD, and total cannabinoids, um, when you kind of sum them all together and then divide by the total cannabinoids analyzed, which was, again, pretty um, surprising. A lot of times in science, you don't see something that cut and dry, um, but this was this was a pretty strong trend. So almost like a bell curve, like a, a kind of uh, with 3.75 on one side and 30 on the other, it kind of peaks at the 11.25 range for almost all your cannabinoids slightly it, uh, maybe it's more of a um, <laughs> roller coaster going up to the top and then just coming down a little bit yeah yeah more like that so kind of kind of the first half of like a, a bell curve or a horseshoe yeah, so okay, you know you're perfect. coming up you're coming up you're coming up and then you level off kind of at that bend and then you kind of stop now was that significant statistically significant <laughs> i couldn't say it between the 11.25 treatment and the 30 parts per million treatment and the difference you saw there because i see that your total cannabinoids for example are higher at 11.25 you know your total thc is higher was that considered significant though so it was not statistically significant and part of the reason there is um if you look at the standard deviations um we had some um quite a bit of variability a little bit more than i was hoping for mm -hmm. um again it's important when when looking at any type of graph or, or figure to look at how much the data is varying um and so our standard deviations were a bit higher um but you are correct between 11.25 and 30 parts per million um even though the means um, were higher at 11.25 compared to the 30. Um, you know, they were not, they were statistically similar. Okay. So if we were just going off this research in <laughs> this table, we could confidently say that 11.25 PPM is going to produce better cannabinoids than 3.75, but you can't confidently say that 30 PPM is necessarily worse than 11.25 other than the fact you may be over applying phosphorus based on these charts. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to make uh, sweeping generalizations um, in the sciences and everything. Sure. I think everyone's pretty pretty well aware that based on you know your vapor pressure deficit what type of lights you're running what temperature you're going for you know are you using kind of a, a living bed or are you working in an inert media you know all of all of these recommendations will change and again when you add into that you know the slight um cultivar differences that you're seeing it makes it really difficult to make an absolute all-encompassing definitive statement on this is unequivocally the best phosphorus concentration um, the thing I always recommend is, you know, this is what the data is saying. Um, and at the end of the paper, we kind of give a, a general range. But to always make sure you're correlating that back to leaf tissue values. 
Because if you're just focusing on what you're applying, once it goes into your system, you know, microbes may use some of it if you're amending with microbes and you're going organic. And so that may decrease the available phosphorus to the plant. But your leaf tissue is always a good go-to because it tells you how much phosphorus the plant is actually getting, which is, again, why we started with the survey ranges, you know, because if, if you're in a highly organic system and you're amending with a lot of bone meal, it takes time for that to break down. You know, there's a cost as that phosphorus goes to the microbes and then gets, you know, mineralized for the plant. And so you really want to fine tune your own specific um, operation by checking your leaf tissue. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't mean to imply to listeners that uh, this study is at all definitive about optimal phosphorus levels. Um, and that there's still a lot of research to do, but I, I think that the trend that it points to is, is really interesting. Um, and I think it would give people a starting point, uh, for where to consider, uh, you know, starting a trial or experiment in their own, in their own garden or, or facility. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely agree. There's way more, uh, research that needs to be done. Um, other scientists, um, other cultivars need to be studied. Um, we can only all get better together as more and more data comes in. Um, but, you know, um, kind of um, going back to the, the next table in the paper um, where we looked at the, the terpenes, um, pretty much across the board, um, we saw a lot of variability and not a lot of statistical significance. Um, and so, you know, we were we were somewhat hoping that we could kind of correlate these uh, mineral nutrients going into um, the system and potentially see an impact there. Um, but really, the only one that we saw an impact in um, was I'm going to butcher this. Um, I think it's um, granol or or geranol. Um, I I can't remember off the top of my head how to pronounce that. I do apologize. Um, in that one, um, we actually saw lower concentrations above the um, 11.25 uh, parts per million for that particular terpene. Would you have expected phosphorus to play a bigger role in terpene expression based on what you know of the of how the plant utilizes phosphorus as a mineral? So as far as like upstream effects um, in the physiology, um, you know, your, your phosphorus, your sulfur, your nitrogen, they're going to play kind of a role in most enzymatic processes. Um, and so we were potentially thinking that there could be some drown downstream effects, um, but it was a long shot. Um, but you know, you, you miss a hundred percent of the, uh, shots you don't take. So we wanted to try and throw in this data set to see if we could, uh, kind of quantify maybe some, uh, far downstream effects. Oh, no, I think it's great that you guys took that data. I think it's really interesting that you didn't see a difference. Um, I don't know what I would have hypothesized, but, um, but yeah, that's very interesting. So I'm glad you guys did that. Um, can you tell me a little about your about the discussion part of your paper and sort of what some of your your conclusions were around around this uh, this trial? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, when... when and look at this um the the story is kind of complicated um you know a lot of times it's it's easy to sit down and give kind of a straightforward story um like you know we want everything to be cut and dry but really the the results of this paper um that we go through in the discussion um it's kind of like um 
we really want growers to take this data and apply it to their own operation. So, you know, if you're going for clones, you may have a different phosphorus recommendation than if you're trying to produce biomass for, say, a distillate market versus, you know, quality bud that's going to be sold um, to like, you know, uh, an, uh, dis- a, a distillery for, um, you know, actually um, smoking that that fresh bud. So where your aesthetic is a lot more important. Um, so uh, really, um, the, the best thing that I can I can comment on for the discussion is, um, you know, our leaf tissue values for our phosphorus, um, they were within the previously reported values um, from Bryson and Mills, which was encouraging. Um, and again, we compare that to some early work that we did with Hunter Landis um, in the survey. Um, and then, like I said, I mentioned the, the newer paper with Jen Kowalski. Um, but, you know, early on, we talk about how plant height and width weren't necessarily um, all that statistically significant. But later on, um, you know, we, we did see those increases. So, yeah. kind of a very, very cursory summary of the discussion. Sure. Uh, do you feel like, I mean, because you applied the same rate of phosphorus throughout the entire uh, life of the plant, would you just speculate that there may be advantages to applying phosphorus at different concentrations at different plant stages from a, from a grower perspective? Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously if you have a a developing seedling, um, you're not going to want to dump on, you know, kind of a nutrient regiment, um, for like a, a full grown plant. Um, so most of the time, um, you know, there, there will be variability within your nutrient program. Um, but as far as correlating that to specific stages, um, at this point, I really do think that we, we need quite a bit more research, um, you know, going into that because a lot of, um, this research here, um, is not necessarily a one-to-one comparison, um, or for most growers because they are on that variable regiment, um, uh, model. And so, you know, one of the things we have to do in science is kind of go back to um, kind of the, the least common um, denominator there. And we have to kind of eliminate that variability from the phosphorus. So we apply that phosphorus at a constant rate so that we don't get any um, confounding effects from a variable rate of phosphorus application. But I would love to see this work continue um, and then actually testing different regiments and different timings. Um, so, you know, that, I don't know if that directly answers your question. Yeah, it, it's, it's challenging for me because from in the, on the industry side, most growers don't have access to leaf tissue analysis. So we're relying on visual symptoms and which can be very challenging because there can be confounding variables when, as, as you know, when it comes to deficiencies or toxicities. Um, and a lot of those can relate to watering and environment. So it can get very confusing or we're required to use uh, soil tests. So a lot of what the work that I'm doing is using um, soil testing in soilless organic media 
looking at like a, a Malik three and a saturated paste test and then making uh, decisions based on that. You know, if we're talking about specifically with phosphorus availability, um, we look at the paste test and see how much is in solution and then make estimations off of that as to how much phosphorus is going to become available throughout the growth cycle. And it gets even more complicated because we have microbes processing all of these amendments, like you mentioned with bone meal or other pea sources. Um, it becomes very, very challenging to know exactly how much phosphorus the plant is getting at any you know, given stage of growth or any particular date in, in, in its growth cycle. Yeah, it does. It does make it really challenging. And it's, it's kind of one of those things that I cringe every single time I have to say it because um, I feel like I, I just constantly am advocating for nutrient, uh, sorry, leaf tissue analyses. And like you said, it's not either acceptable to the industry or it's just not common at all. Um, and there are a few um, other works out there that I've seen uh, potentially correlating um, spectral imaging to um, nutrient concentration or even looking at, say, like a pour through method or, um, you know, some sort of a, a leachate analysis where you know what you're putting into the system and then you can check what's coming out at the other end, um, either at the, you know, draining from the pot or um, from your, you know, slab and then trying to extrapolate back out to that, you know, what may be taken out by the plant. But again, like you mentioned, it gets complicated because you also have the microbes in there, potentially algae. Um, but, you know, there's definitely more research needed to try and potentially find a quick and dirty method um, for the industry, you know, so that we don't have to rely on these costly um, resources. Yeah. And like you mentioned, affordable, too, because that's a that's a big mm -hmm. issue for a lot of growers right now, especially in the current state of our uh, of where our industry is at nationally um which is i'm really curious to hear um as we move on to patrick's work because uh one thing that we found in in our testing and just you know correlating the data that we're getting off of soil tests with plant health and and yields in the facilities that we work with is that we can apply significantly lower levels of phosphorus and even have lower like one of the best performing facilities I work with has consistently low available phosphorus. Um, and yet if you, if you look at their bud and, and dry weight, it's phenomenal. So I've always leaned towards lower P levels. Um, so I'm really curious to hear uh, Paul or Patrick, what you have to say in terms of the research that you did, if we can move on to your paper. Um, how does that sound? Yeah. Um, I did want to make a comment on the variable versus continuous phosphorus rate. Um, I think it also really stems back to your production practices. Here, we were not pruning, nor are we defoliating the plant, because um, phosphorus is stored in those lower leaves, and it's mobile. So as the plant needs it, it has the ability to move them up to those sinks, which would be your developing buds. So one of the things is that if you are not pruning and you're not uh, defoliating, you actually kind of have a small storage unit in those lower leaves that the plant's able to move up to where the buds are developing. So you may not need to boost um, later in the production cycle as you're having bud set. However, if a grower is pruning or defoliating, you are removing those nutrients off the plant that could have potentially been mobile to go to that new sink. So I think 
with us using a continuous rate and not pruning, we were able to use those um, mobile nutrients that were stored so that you, growers should also evaluate their production practice practices. But this is a good starting block for, you know, the bare bones of the plant to see um, how phosphorus interacted in the plant without pruning. Um, additional work does need to be done with pruning, defoliating, and uh, leaching of the system and flushing to see, you know, do you need a boost later um, if you remove the phosphorus that you store up at a young plant when it's not necessarily needed before flowering? Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. I'm glad you brought up that comment. Um, and, I, and I do hope we do see more research come out around pruning because we have a pretty wide range of uh, cultural practices in the cannabis industry, ranging from removing pretty much all fan leaves to leaving a significant amount of canopy. Um, so yeah, I would love to see that research. Maybe that's something you guys will do someday. <laughs> uh, well, let's tell me a little bit about, uh, so the, so the paper that you authored is um, with Paul and Dylan Kidd and uh, Brian Whipker is called Elevated Phosphorus Fertility Impact on Cannabis Sativa, uh, Bayox Growth and Nutrient Accumulation. Now, what led to you, um, your interest, I guess, in, 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 in uh, formulating this trial and writing this paper? So initially we started off with Paul's work looking at the lower fertility ranges and I remember I went into one of the uh, hemp grow stores, which was close to where me and Paul had our research going on. And they were selling products that had close to uh, 200 part per million phosphorus in it. And I had, I struggled to understand how I could get, or we were getting uh, healthy looking plants at, you know, 11 and a quarter, 15, 30. And someone is selling a product that is 200 part per million phosphorus in it. And, you know, we were seeing other things online saying that you really needed to boost it up, even up to the 250-300 range. And it was uh, harder for me to comprehend why that was needed and why a grower should invest that much money when we were able to get results for uh, much less. So uh, Paul and I decided to build upon his work and expand it further to these upper rates. But then also backpedaling to Paul Nelson, who was a former professor at NC State, and Josh Henry, who was a former PhD student. They looked at other floriculture crops and phosphorus as growth control. So as you increase phosphorus to higher levels, you get more internode stretch. So Paul's work was looking at those lower rates where we might have been seeing uh, growth control and not seeing as much internode elongation. So we wanted to compare it to what the industry was doing and how that affected plant growth. Did we get really lanky plants that needed to be supported or were we controlling that internode stretch by using less phosphorus while still getting the same uh, growth pattern as uh, the other two researchers found with many other floriculture species? So this was more of, well, we know what happens at lower rates, less tests against what we're seeing in the industry of these, uh, what we considered elevated phosphorus compared to what was needed to be considered healthy. That's great. Well, take me through your paper, I guess. Um, what was the sort of your methodology and uh, 
what were you measuring? So I followed a, a very similar system that Paul used. I used four different uh, phosphorus fertility rates of 15, 60, 120, and 180 part per million phosphorus. And this was constant feed. And the only element that I modified was the phosphorus rate. We held nitrogen constant, uh, all the other macros and micros constant other than the phosphorus so that we try to have that fair comparison of everything is held equal but the phosphorus rate. Um, so just because we did have high or low P doesn't mean that our nitrogen changed so that we didn't see impacts of other elements. Um, I grew the plants for 12 weeks in total, four weeks vegetative and eight weeks reproductive. And once again, similar to Paul's, I did not uh, prune, trim, uh, modify the plants. Um, and at weeks uh, 12, we looked at plant growth overall uh, and nutrient accumulation and total bud weight. Uh, but the two studies are very similar um, in how we conducted the research. Uh, we basically had a cut and paste system for the two where we only modified the phosphorus rates that were used to try and get that fair comparison. Now, do you feel like container side could have been a limiting factor in terms of root growth in your study as well? Or did you not see that? Oh, uh, when I was terminating the experiment, I didn't notice any root bound plants. Um, but I only went out for 12 weeks compared to 16 weeks as Paul did. Okay. And, you know, the extra four weeks of vegetative growth for Paul's, I really think, um, increase that biomass a fair bit, uh, potentially looking at a different container size, maybe going up to a three gallon pot instead of a one gallon pot, we could have seen a little bit of difference as well. But uh, once, as soon as those roots got to the side of the container, they really took off and um, thrived under all of the phosphorus rates. Okay, so you went 12 weeks total, so eight weeks of veg or reproductive growth and that Oh, sorry. You would, you did four weeks of veg and then eight weeks of flowering. Is that correct? Correct. Sir. So you did, yeah. you did four weeks shorter than Paul did and on the veg side, not on the flower side. Correct. All right. Perfect. And, uh, okay. I'm looking at table two at 12 weeks of growth. Can you kind of tell me what your findings were? Yeah. So after 12 weeks of total growth, we did not see a difference in height, diameter, or total total above ground biomass. Um, from 15 to 180, everything was similar. I will comment on the height. I was slightly surprised that um, as we increased all the way up to 180 part per million P, we didn't see a difference in height. I expected uh, the 180 part per million P plants to have a little bit more stretch in the internodes, uh, leading to greater plant height but we didn't even see that. Um, total bud weight was significantly different. Um, however, everything here is within two grams of uh, the means, and um, we don't notice a clear trend. Uh, we see it peak at uh, 60 ppm, but then go down. Um, and the only difference we could say was between 60 and 120 but everything is uh, fairly consistent across all of them. And I wouldn't say that 
um, you know, picking one of these rates will yield you a, a greater bud weight compared to the others. Yeah, that is interesting. It, it it doesn't look like there's much of a difference, like you said, over the over the whole uh, the, the, quite a significant range in, in P rates. You know, going from fifteen to one hundred eighty. Um, did you look at below ground weight weight at all, biomass or anything no, like that? Uh, that wasn't part we of it. Visually assessed root growth. Um, however, we didn't wash roots like Paul did. Um, visually, we didn't see a difference. However, I can't quantify a difference for you. But sure. for all of these rates, they looked fairly similar visually. Did you um, did you did you notice anything else visually amongst the the difference in P rates? Like, if you were to walk into the greenhouse, could you see a significant difference from one treatment to the other if you didn't know? anything about the experiment? I honestly could not tell any differences across the board. Um, looking at them, uh, we could have potentially expected a little bit darker uh, foliage for those that um, had greater uh, uh, phosphorus concentrations. However, looking across the board of the plants, they all looked very similar. And we, it was very hard to tell that anything was different amongst any of the phosphorus fertility rates. And did you see any issues of toxicities or anything like that? I'm, I'm guessing no, if you didn't see any real visual differences. Um, so we did not, uh, we didn't report any uh, phosphorus toxicity symptoms, even getting up to 180 part per million P constant feed. Typically, uh, when you get phosphorus that high, you actually see an antagonism with iron. So with having high uh, phosphorus fertility rates in the plant uptaking high P, you actually will uh, block the plant from uptaking iron. And we did not see a clear trend on uh, iron levels other than um, actually the lower uh, phosphorus fertility rates shown a lower iron concentration, which is actually backwards from the anticipated antagonism that's in the literature. Hmm. Um, so nothing visually different, and we didn't see the antagonisms that are typically associated with phosphorus either. Yeah, I'm looking at that chart right now. Was there anything else in this in this chart that you wanted to point out on the terms of nutrient accumulation in the leaf tissue at 12 weeks? So on the 12-week nutrient accumulation, I definitely want to highlight the phosphorus. And we noticed down at the uh, uh, 15 uh, part per million P, we have the lowest uh, phosphorus foliar concentration, which is to be expected. However, we noticed that we don't really see a plateau. Um, 15 to 60 is a linear increase. 60 to 120, they're not different. But even when you get up to 180p, it's significantly different than all the other ones. So you can supply the plant with as much phosphorus as you possibly can, it seems, and it will uptake it. However, just because that plant's uptaking it, we're not seeing that return in investment on your growth. So the plant's uh, exhibiting luxury consumption, and it is likely that it can sequester it very well all day and it won't antagonize other elements of the plant and it's good at storing it, 
Um, however, you're not seeing a return on that in terms of plant growth in this study. But you're not seeing any antagonisms necessarily either at those high doses. Correct. So it's really yeah, not, it you're just wasting your money kind of things. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not harming the plant, but you're not seeing a benefit of it. It's seeming that it's uh, just storing it in the plant and it's sitting in the leaf, not harming it or helping you. Um, so this kind of points to, you know, if we can get away with that 15 to 30 range that Paul noted, why do we need to have 108 uh, part per million phosphorus supplied to the plant when it will uptake it? Of course, it's not just leaching out the bottom of the pot, but you're not seeing that uh, increase in growth or um, increase in bud weight. Yeah, so why i'm trying to figure this out in my head as i'm as i'm saying it so this may not be a complete thought i'm noticing that the k levels went down uh or sorry the k levels went up as you went from 15 to 180 ppm your calcium levels went down um is that related to ph at all or i would have initially thought that you would have had greater root biomass potentially leading to greater overall nutrient uptake with higher p levels but that doesn't seem to be the case um how how would you begin to explain i guess those those numbers uh looking at the uptake patterns for those seeing the potassium increase um i'm not aware of any literature that's uh, published on increase in potassium foliar uptake with increasing P. Mm -hmm. um, however, we do see that strong trend. But I also want to point that it's following similar to um, the phosphorus, where that 60 and 120 are fairly similar as well, um, with in being greater than 15. Um, but not necessarily uh, similar to the 180. It kind of seems that it plateaus for a while and then increases once again. Um, and then for the calcium decrease, I'm not aware of an antagonism between um, phosphorus and calcium. Paul, are you? So if, if, you refer to, um, there's a chart called Mulder's chart, M-U-L-D-E-R apostrophe S chart. Mm -hmm. um, and it, if you're not aware of this resource, it's a, it's a good chart to be familiar with. It, it looks kind of weird to begin with. There's a whole bunch of nutrients um, kind of around a circle and a whole bunch of arrows going together. Um, but as far as phosphorus is concerned, um, you will see an antagonism. Uh, between phosphorus and calcium and that's kind of what the arrows are indicating you know one mm -hmm. nutrient may um, essentially have a stimulation or a synergism with another element so if you get an increase in phosphorus for example you may get more magnesium um, and then if you get phosphorus too high like patrick said it can cause antagonisms with iron and calcium is one of those that it can cause antagonisms with so i would say that that decrease is probably uh what we we're seeing there and again, this is more of a guideline. It's going to really depend on what type of system you're in. Um, are you in soil? Are you in a substrate? Are you using, you know, 
water-soluble fertilizers? Are you in an organic system? So uh, Mulder's chart's more of a guideline in general trends, um, but there are some nuances that, that exist. Um, like you said, Tad, um, pH is one of them. Yeah, it's definitely complicated. Um, I found it not to be quite as useful for me in um, organic production, just because there's so many more variables associated with it, and the nutrient cycling from from microbiology just contributes a whole other factor there. And also another level of, of buffering, I find. Um, but I, I my initial thought when I saw these results was, okay, there's the increase in P is probably leading to a greater root biomass, which means we're getting better nutrient uptake, which explains the K. And then I got to calcium and I, <laughs> I didn't know quite what to do with that. Uh, they kind of threw that out the window. I thought, okay, well maybe, uh, the, the P, the higher levels of P are lowering the pH, which would cause maybe less calcium availability, but, um, that didn't explain the K. So I, I was just curious what your guys' thoughts were on that. And actually for the pH, when you see this study, it was consistent across all of the P fertility rates. Um, so the uh, fertility wasn't, or the phosphorus input was not altering the substrate pH or the uh, EC. That was, that remained constant across all treatments here. So how does, how does that work? Cause I would assume that a level of phosphate that high would lower your pH or at least lower your, your solution going in, um, more than one of 15. Was that not, not, not really the case or did you guys buffer it? Um, so we started off with using a custom blended substrate where we blended ourselves. So we don't have any inputs coming in other than our lime charge and our wetting agent, as well as the peat and the perlite. Um, we did not have to buffer the pH at all in the study. Um, we used modified Hoagland, so everything was fairly well balanced. And after 12 weeks, we didn't see a impact on substrate pH. Um, and that is partly by, you know, trying to really carefully balance the salts and the plant taking them up rapidly. Um, but after 12 weeks of growth, we didn't see any impact on pH or EC. Um, Paul, when you were increasing your P fertility rates, did you see an impact on your pH or EC? Yeah, so um, we didn't we didn't see an increase either. Um, and one one thing I'll piggyback off of that is that you know with the modified Hopeland solution, um, you know you're you're keeping your water soluble ion at a constant concentration, but the individual salts that you're adding into that recipe will change. And based on that change, um, we did have to add in some sodium hydroxide into the system to kind of um, even out some of those. Um, pH charges there. So kind of to answer your question, Tad, we didn't necessarily amend the substrate pH, but when, when we're custom blending these fertilizer solutions, um, sometimes we do have to increase our sodium hydroxide to kind of buffer out that uh, increased pH charge that could be coming from, um, you know, adjusting some of the salt inputs. Okay. Gotcha. Sorry. This is not my world. I'm an organic guy. So um, <laughs> bear with me when I don't totally wrap my brain around exactly how you guys are formulating these, uh, these fertilizers. So I appreciate you explaining to me. Um, if I could real quick, um, 
But you're you're spot on though, um, Tad. That you know this this Molders chart here is m- very much a tool for you know um, substrate based, cons- you know, water soluble ions, um, not necessarily um, an organic system. So, but you know, you you you're, you're spot on in a lot of your insights here. So no, don't I'm, sell yourself short, man. Well, I, <laughs> I appreciate. I I really appreciate what you guys are doing, and you know, coming on the show to share this research. Um, as an organic grower, when we start talking about P rates, um, my initial thought goes to, uh, well, one, the environmental impact, which we already kind of touched on a little bit, um, but P-solubilizing microbes and mycorrhizal fungi and the role those play in making P available. Because typically in an organic system, and even in a lot of conventional systems, we have high levels of unavailable phosphorus. Um, and it's really getting available P that's the big challenge. Um, did, I mean, your research doesn't exactly speak to this, but did you guys have any thoughts in, on this or anything I mentioned there as you've been studying phosphorus so much? Or maybe not? <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I can comment on that. Um, I was, I was given a little time buffer there. Um, but you know, you're, you're very correct um, that once you move into a, a soil system or something more like a living bed or even an organic system, the microbiology just becomes so much more important. Um, and you have, you know, your adsorption, your desorption of the ions, you know, your complexation, as well as, you know, what the microbes are going to eat, the rate of microbial growth and mineralization. And it becomes just so much more complex. And, uh, Oftentimes, you have to dump a whole bunch more reserve phosphorus into that type of system just to get your plant available. Um, so, you know, one one of the things that would be just absolutely amazing um, would be looking at the adsorption and desorption of phosphorus under these uh, main systems that the industry is using. You know, whether that be like a living bed or actual like, you know, um, some sort of soil-based um work so but you know but before we get there um there's a few key aspects that need to be explored such as uptake and partitioning um and then reallocation um would be another but you're you're spot on tad that you know this this is an extremely dynamic system and oftentimes your reserve or soil ph can be just so much higher than that um which the plant available uh concentrations would be and to kind of go off of that, I think it really comes back around to, as a grower, what are your production practices? Um, so if you're going in a hydroponic system, this kind of acts as a cornerstone to say you can really dial your phosphorus rate back compared to being in an organic system. You, ne- you may need to increase it and give yourself a little bit more of that buffer but this kind of acts as what is your, for plant available P, how much of that is needed um, in certain systems. And it's kind of a good cornerstone for where growers can start to look at, but everyone needs to kind of modify this uh, baking recipe for what they're doing and how it's going to work for them. Um, while this serves as a good cornerstone of literature, because it's been all plant available P those who are, using more soil or organic systems uh, will need to modify it, but this is a good starting point. Oh, absolutely. I think this research you guys did is, is huge. Uh, I can't thank you enough for it because 
at the end of the day, as a grower, if the only takeaway I get from this research is to start experimenting with lower rates of phosphorus, um, that could have a dramatic input on the in uh, impact on the industry in terms of the amount of pea that we really need to mine or purchase or apply to our plants. Um, that's a big deal. So I hope people will consider uh, you know, experimenting in their facility with lower rates of pea and see how their plants respond and if that has an impact on yield. And I, I look forward to seeing some you know, real-life uh, results in you know in the field and see if those mirror and trend along with what your research has shown yeah and I'll just I'll piggyback off of that again here Tad and say that you know this is this is one of the most exciting areas for me personally um, you know you can you can be a scientist and you can do this work and you can publish it and sometimes it feels like you're just shouting into the the void and so it's it's moments like these where people can come alongside and, and talk through the science. And then we as scientists can learn from, you know, people who are in the industry and in production, um, you know, because it, it's a give and take. Right. It's a relationship. You know, we we have the science and we hold things constant and we you know do this stuff. But really, it's it's people like yourself doing the amazing work that you're doing with the organic stuff and then industry input and everything. You know, we're, we're all only going to be better together um so oh yeah you bring up a great point like as as a grower um my challenge is not just finding information and research but being able to understand that research you know and not drawing conclusions that may not necessarily be accurate or, or jumping to conclusions based off of one paper and that's where you know people like you and patrick can come in and say oh okay slow down here's what we can kind of say from our research and here's what we can't say necessarily at this point but maybe we can point you in a direction and then what what growers can give back is hey this is an area that really needs to be researched and something that we need to we need to get more data on so that we can make better decisions in the field uh, so i i love that sort of synergistic um, relationship that i hope we can improve on because historically that's always been a challenge in agriculture between you know farmers or, or green grass growers and you know, academia. So it's kind of where, where this whole podcast idea came around. Um, so I really appreciate you guys sharing this. Uh, on that note, um, I do want to just once again plug your original paper um, talking about uh, nutrient disorders, Paul. I think that paper is, is wonderful. Um, I, everyone should have it as a resource. Um, I recently shared that poster on our Instagram page that you guys put together. Is that something you're ever going to be... Um, printing or are there other places people can find that <laughs> yeah no we we've had so many inquiries about printing and everything from that and you know we're we're still trying to figure out how to you know get that out there um as far as like a, a printing service goes and everything um but eventually yes uh we're, we're hoping to get that in some sort of form um but one thing I, I will say is um, we've had a lot of requests over the years to just kind of have a centralized location um, for all of our research and our resources. And uh, Patrick actually has been spearheading that. So I'll let him kind of talk about that and, and kind of plug the, the newest development there. So to kind of build off of the poster that Paul created that we got a lot of positive feedback on, um, we took that poster and me and Paul built this website where we house all of our resources at one location and it's Cannabis Scientifica and it'll be linked below. 
Um, but we do have each nutrient disorder has its own tab where you can read the description. And then we have, for most of them, at least one resource attached below. Um, I know phosphorus, we have both of these articles um, in one or two other popular press. But this website was really to build the culmination of all of the grower magazine and uh, extension alerts that we've put out, as well as our scientific research. Um, so for those who are just simply trying to diagnose something, it's an excellent place to start. And if you want to go into detail on, you know, how can I craft my um, phosphorus rate or my magnesium rates, you know, you can go on there and you can find more of the in-depth science of what we observed, as well as all of the images and photos that we've uh, culminated and put in different places. Now we finally have them all uh, housed in one location for um, people who are trying to problem solve. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely have that link available uh, on the podcast page and where social media allows me to put links. I know Instagram makes it really challenging. Um, so we'll definitely have that on the podcast page for folks. Um, that's so cool that you guys make that available to people. Um, the last thing I want to touch on and um, hopefully have you back on here soon guys is to talk about you have another paper out called magnesium impact magnesium's impact on cannabis sativa um, growth in cannabinoid production i would love to get you guys back on soon to talk about uh this most recent paper talking about magnesium for sure yeah so yeah, patrick actually was the one that spearheaded that um so you know it'll be nice to come back on because uh <laughs> i'll be able to take the back seat on that one <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'm sure we'll get questions out after this phosphorus uh, podcast post, and maybe we can answer those and then tackle this magnesium paper here soon. I really appreciate you guys. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Any any last words before we sign off? Uh, just thank you so much for allowing us to highlight our research and um, really get it out to um, growers and everyone who could you know, hopefully benefit from it. And thank you for all the work that you've done with the industry. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah, I would, again, just say thank you so much for having us, Tad. Um, it's it's great to be back on. I always really enjoy your podcast, your Instagram, your posts and everything. They're always just super insightful. And I love how you just bring this amazing synergistic view to all of your work um, and this attention to detail. It's, it's really inspiring. So we appreciate you highlighting the research and, and your partnership. And to all the growers out there, um, you know, Keep, keep growing, keep doing what you're doing. We're, we're all only better together. Awesome. Well, you guys have a wonderful rest of your day over there on the East Coast and uh, look forward to talking soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. That was Paul Coxon and Patrick Feasy, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and give us a follow on Instagram. If you want to support the podcast, check out the wider range of products we offer on our website, ranging from soils, amendments, beneficial insects, sticky cards, soil test analysis, and consulting. You can also sign up for our newsletter on our website homepage to stay up to date on the latest research and information. Thanks for listening.